to the Disaster Area Movie Break. Uh, this is Jennifer, your normal, average, everyday host, who is usually fairly sober and very, very serious. Uh, but every once in a while, we all need a break, and when you're talking about disasters and tragedies and horrific stories, maybe we all need a break. Um, so the point of the movie break, which is what we're doing now, this very first movie break, is to have kind of a timeout. Um, right now I am about a sheet and a half to the wind. Um, I have discovered, um, hard root beer, and a particular hard root beer which tastes more like root beer than beer, which is very good for me. And the reason that I'm drinking is because, like I said, it's a movie break. I'm watching a movie. Or I have watched a movie. I've watched a couple of movies for this particular episode, actually, and... I think it's only fair that I have something to drink. Mm. So, I'm a little buzzed, and um, today I'm going to be talking about disaster movies, or in particular, one disaster movie and the disaster movies that are related to it. Um, today I wanted to talk about, um, well, I wanted to talk about a lot of subjects. There were a lot of different angles that I wanted to go toward, and... Um, you know, I, I kind of debated which way I wanted to go, you know, if I wanted to go um, kind of a more a more academic route and, and talk about gender disparity and gender equality in, in disaster movies, of which there really isn't a lot of a lot of the time, even now. Um, or I could, um, you know, say, look at the dueling disaster movies of the late 90s when they were putting out movies about asteroids or volcanoes within two or three months of each other. But I decided I wanted to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, if not my favorite movie of all time, which is The Poseidon Adventure. Uh, 1972, it is one of the cheesiest movies you're ever going to watch. If you haven't watched it already, and I really recommend you go and watch it if you like disasters at all, if you like disaster movies at all, because if you're not watching it or if you haven't watched it, you're missing out. It is kind of um I want to say it's it's sort of the the birth of a genre but it's something different than that because it before um the Poseidon Adventure it seems like a lot of disaster movies were I want to say that they were kind of um about um the same thing they all seem to be about like shipwrecks and this sort of thing and and um you know it seems like 90% of them were about the Titanic uh, but when you got to the Poseidon Adventure, you had something that was based on a book, um, and the book itself was pretty popular. Um, I read it again the last couple of days. I had read it when I was in my 20s. I can't remember exactly when, but it was had about, been about 10 years ago. And it was um, because I had not known until that point that the Poseidon Adventure, was, which was this movie that I had loved since I was a kid, was based on a book. And... So I went out and I got a copy of this book, which is, you know, from the late 60s, early 70s, and it's kind of cheesy and, and you know, it's it's what a disaster movie is. It's a bunch, about a bunch of characters who are on this ship, and um, this disaster happens and they have to survive until the end of the story. Uh, it's a lot different than the, um, uh, than the movie itself. Um, if 
um, you know, you need any sort of reminder of what happened in the movie. Um, in the 1972 Poseidon Adventure, what you had was a group of people who were on a ship called the Poseidon, which was on its way to be junked. It was um, going to be scrapped for parts. And so a lot of these people were on the ship traveling on the Mediterranean, um, you know, having a good time. And it's the holidays. They're going to um, go to this New Year's Eve party. Well, um, when they go to this New Year's Eve party on the ship, this giant tidal wave comes out of nowhere, this giant tsunami, and comes and knocks the boat over, and um, it ends up upside down because the water balanced ballast tell I'm drunk. It's a little like drunk history here, except it's drunk film history, and I'm not really that drunk. In any event, all of these people are on this ship when it flips over, and because it's flipped over, now to escape the ship, they have to climb up to the bottom of the ship, and that's the Poseidon adventure. Um, Erwin Allen, who's the producer of a lot of different TV shows, um, like um, Lost in Space and other ones that I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, he, he had read the book and he thought it would make a great movie. And having read the book, um, it would make a great movie. Uh, even now, I've seen that movie. I've seen the remix and the um, miniseries and the terrible um, sequel. Well, at least part of the terrible sequel. Um, it's um, He read it and he thought it would make a great book. And, and when you read it, you think the same thing. It's like uh, a great movie. And you read it and you think, this would make a great movie. Um it's um but the thing is that when you read it um you do kind of think okay it would make a great movie but you have to cut out this 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 and this you know there are certain things that really need to be gotten rid of and one one thing that you have to give credit for um, to the Poseidon Adventure the people making the movie is that they knew exactly what to cut out of the movie um cut out of the book that is Maybe if I have another drink, I will be a little more better with the English language. Apparently, that's a no. Um, okay. So, anyway, the book itself features more characters. There are more characters that, that than there are in the movie. Um, it's not this um, seven or eight people at the end. It's, uh, it, you know, something like um, um, 10 or 11 Um and of those, um, you can see where they kind of blended some characters together. For example, um, Susan, who is the teenage girl in the, um, in the book, she's kind of blended together with this, uh, this, this spinster from England who has this crush on, um, uh, the, the Reverend Scott. Um, she says she, she, she was intimate with him and they were going to get married and everybody's kind of like, okay, you know, this is after he dies. Um, but that they seem to have blended those two together. So in the movie you get this, this teenage girl who kind of has this, um, terrible crush on Gene Hackman of all people. And then, you know, there's another character, um, his name is Hubie, and he's a rich guy from, um, San Francisco, and he's kind of, um, he's kind of a, 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 kind of, kind of a snob, um, uh, you know, he, uh, he falls for Nani, or Nana, or whatever her name is, um, uh, who is, um, you know, in the movie, she's the singer, 
and she, he's kind of blended with James Martin, who in the in the book is you know kind of exactly as Red Buttons is in the movie. You know, he's kind of kind of drab and older, and he doesn't really seem that attractive um, physically or anything like that. You know, and of course he's got his little pills. In the book, he doesn't seem to have them, at least not that I can remember right now. But um, you know, they seem to have blended him with this Hubie Muller guy. And uh, let me tell you what. All right. Um, I, I, as somebody who studies, like, uh, reads a lot about, um, you know, tragedies and disasters and crime and stuff, the fact that they used a guy named uh, um, Hubie Muller in this book, um, I just, it, it just seems to... Um, close to Herbert Mullen for me, who was a, who was a, uh, a serial killer in, in, uh, in California at the time. But anyway, they kind of blend him and this James Martin character together. And, you know, they kind of do that with a couple other characters. Um, in the book, the teenage girl and her little brother, Susan and Robin, their parents are on board, which is probably makes more sense than it does in the, in the movie where, where for some reason they're just alone. Um, they're alone and they're traveling to visit their parents for, I don't know why their parents didn't invest in plane tickets. So their their children who, um, at least one of whom is underage are floating alone on this junked, uh, uh cruise liner. But anyway, the book itself is, is kind of hilariously awful um, in some points. I mean, it's a lot of fun. You can see how it would make a really good action movie. But at the same time, there are things that happen in the book that just defy description. For example, this Hubie, Miller, oh, this Hubie character, um, this rich guy, um, he kind of falls for Nani, who in the book is very... Um, you know, she's kind of coarse and poor, and she can she you can tell she can kind of take care of herself, um, and you know, which is kind of different from the 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 movie. But she does get really attached to him really quickly, and at some point when they're all trying to escape this ship, they wander off and have sex somewhere, and and it's and it apparently it's like mind blowing, you know, like you know not. It's, it feels like one of those scenes where in a regular movie, like, it would be like, um, you know, we're not having sex, we're making love, you know? I, and I can't even remember if one of them says it at the moment, but that's what it feels like. And he's, you know, completely changed by this. And then for the rest of the book, he kind of sits around and thinks, you know, what have I gotten myself into? She's poor, and she says bad words, and, you know, like, he's just... It, it's, a, it's a really ridiculous relationship already, as it was, you know, as it were, without him being a, a snob for the rest of the book. But then, um, you know, you have other changes, like um, Mike Rogo, who in the movie is played by, um, who's play, is played by Ernest Borgnine. In the book, I mean, as coarse and rough as he is in the movie, in the book, he's just hella racist. I mean, he's just, if he can be racist about something, he just seems to find a way to cram a little racism in there. Oh, there's there's still some more open room. Let's cram some more racism in there. Oh, I haven't said anything homophobic yet. Bang, bang, bang. You know, he's just, he's just really, really offensive. And then his wife, instead of being a prostitute like she is in the movie, is actually a retired um, uh, Broadway star. And all she kind of does for the book is sort of, bitch about the fact that she has to, you know, she had to quit everything. She, she also doesn't complain about how she had to quit her, her mag, her magnificent life as a, as a Broadway star to marry this bum. 
And you kind of think, like, like, why? You know, even when he explains it later on, which is basically that, you know, she had this secret life where her her family treated her bad, and she was abused, and she was raped, and she was all kinds of molested, and she was all kinds of different things. I mean, it's just, her backstory is awful. But she does, She never tells him. But he looks it up because, of course, he's a detective, and when some starlet is, is on Broadway, they, they look her up when, you know, they work that beat so they know everything in her backstory so they can take care of her or something like that. It's just It just seems really ridiculous, even when he says, well, I knew this big secret about her backstory, but she didn't know that I knew and I never told her. And you're just kind of like, at, at this point, you're just like, why did you marry each other? Like, you just seem like you're awful for one another. But that's not even the worst of it, um, in terms of plot lines. Um, I will say that one of, one of the plot lines that I'm really glad they got rid of from the book, uh, is, is one that, I'm gonna tell you this, and you're gonna just think, yeah, it's, it's a really good thing that they didn't put that in the movie. But... What ends up happening in the in the in the book is they are are wandering through the ship, and in, in the movie, there's a point where um they kind of um pause and they say, okay, well, we need to go look for supplies, and they all split up, and and all these characters go off, and and uh, you know they have these little heart to hearts, and and in these like character building discussions, and then, and then they come back together again, and. Um, in the movie, the Reverend Scott and the little boy, Robin, almost miss escaping from this flood of water that is chasing them to the next level, and they they finally do um, rescue themselves. In the book, there's this event that happens. There's a lot of confusion. The, the way it's written is really confusing to the reader, too. It's just kind of like, what, what just happened? But suffice it to say that, you know, you have the... Um, you have everybody there. You have the parents of these two kids there, and all of a sudden they realize the little boy Robin is gone. Um, he's disappeared. We don't know where he is. So everybody stops and says, "Okay, we gotta go look for Robin." And they all split up. And at this point, the ship is sinking. The lights are off. The electricity doesn't work. They're wandering around in the dark. And Susan goes, "Wait, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna look for him on my own." I don't know why she decides to go look on her own, but it's a book that you know, you don't really sit around and question these characters' motives for too long or you're really going to have a headache. So she goes off and she's she's wandering down this hallway and she thinks she sees tentacles. I don't know what she thinks the tentacles are. Like, you know, how, how mentally um, scarred do you have to be from this disaster to be like, oh, look, tentacles, and go running towards them. But um, she, she starts trying to figure out what that is. And as she's doing that, Somebody wraps their arms around her from behind. And the next thing she knows, she's thrown to the ground and she's raped. It, yeah, that uh, you're, the face that you're making right now, uh, that's the face that I made the first time that I ever read the book. Kind of like, wait, what'd you say? And that's, and that's part of the reason why I had to reread it, because um, I wanted to make sure I didn't hallucinate this part of the book. But she's thrown down and she's raped. Um, she's rape, you know, from behind, like, on the ground, and she can't really see who it is, and she's just kind of, like, having some sort of weird, like, she kind of talks about it, like, like, um, 
she doesn't really, um, like, like, it's terrible, but in this sort of, like, sterile kind of way, like, like, oh, well, Susan knew this was the worst thing that would ever happen to her, except the way that you're hearing it in your head is, Susan knew this was the worst thing that ever happened to her. It was just very, like, like, dry and, and just like, wow, you know, does she ever show any emotion or anything? But wait, she does show emotion, because as soon as this guy is done, um, she manages to kind of get him off of her, and, um, she has a, she has like a flashlight or, or a light, a light or something like that, and she kind of, she turns on the light, and it's this young guy who isn't really that much older than her, so he's like 18, 19, and he's got this like baby face and these like and this like blonde hair, and he and he looks at her and he just he just bursts into tears and he's like, oh no, it's a passenger. Oh no, I'm gonna be in so much trouble. I thought you were I thought you were like a stewardess and I was just gonna you know have a bit of fun before I you know and the, and and the whole time he's talking, you're just thinking, God, what a what a you know, and you're just trying to come up with the right word for it. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, kid, what the hell is wrong with you? Because the way that he's talking about her isn't that, oh my God, I am so sorry, I really shouldn't have done that. You know, or he's not having a breakdown because he shouldn't have done that. It, he's he's having a breakdown because he shouldn't have done that to a passenger. Like, oh my gosh, you're wearing, you know, like you, sh you know, if you were a stewardess, this would have been perfectly okay. Which is just, you know, it's just bad enough on its own. But then Susan, who has been through this horrible trauma and who has just been raped, sees this, this guy, her rapist, sitting there crying his eyes out and decides, you know what he needs? He needs to be comforted. So she starts telling him, no, 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 it's fine. I won't tell anyone. Don't worry about it. And then she goes and she tries to give him a hug, like comfort him. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, and you're, you're, you're watching, you're reading this and you're thinking, well, okay, um, how traumatized is this poor girl? Like, it seems like you have to uh, tip over a certain level of trauma to sit there and comfort your rapist with genuine, genuine concern. Not because you're, you're, um, you know, you're trying to escape the without any more harm coming to you, but because you just, you're really worried about him. This poor kid did, you know, like, you're not, she's not really thinking clearly for any sort of person who's ever been through a rape or who's ever, um, you know, it's just, it's just very traumatizing, um, to read because you're just kind of sitting there thinking, if you didn't know already that it was written by a man, now you know. Um, <laughs> So anyway, you know, they, they, well, this part, they, they, you know, she, she he just kind of runs off. Like, there's a plot hole, like a literal plot hole in this ship from, you know, the stairway filling up a water or something, and he just runs off, and he, he falls into the plot hole, he falls into the staircase filled with water, wherever he went, he's gone. Herbert, the, uh, the, um, uh, rapist slash, slash sailor, is gone. And Susan gets up and just kind of strains herself up and goes off looking for her brother again. And at this point, you know, you're really starting to go, okay, you know, it, it already doesn't seem like reality, but okay, fine. Just, you know, it, get, it gets worse. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't only get worse because the boy never gets found, which in the book, he's not 
half as annoying as he is in the movie. But in the book, at the end of the movie, at the end of the book, um, when they're all getting rescued from the ship and, um, you know, they're getting into this, this lifeboat, there are also people who are being rescued from the other end of the ship. Um, some people have managed to make it out on that end, and then this group of people who, who got out on, on um, the end by the propeller. And Susan is sitting in this little lifeboat, and she's watching the other lifeboat and looking for the face of her rapist. Now, I would think that if you were looking for the face of your rapist, you were doing so because you wanted that guy to be arrested and thrown into jail. She's looking for the the face of her rapist because she wants him saved. She wants him to go on and live. And when she can't see the guy who raped her, and I cannot say this enough, he raped her. She's sitting there, and she's looking at this boat, and she can't see him in there, and she thinks suddenly that she really hopes he got her pregnant. She really hopes he got her pregnant, because at some point, he had said, when he was when he was having his little breakdown, and he was talking about, um, you know, what an awful thing he had done, and he shouldn't have raped a passenger. You know, apparently it's perfectly okay to rape a stewardess, but he raped a passenger, and he, he had said that, oh, you know, I, I, um, you know, I'm a, a sailor, but I, I have um, family in Hull. My parents live in Hull. They run a fish and chip shop there. And then he kind of, that's when he panics and he runs away. So she kind of sits there and thinks, I really hope I'm pregnant. So this way I can take that baby. And he, and in her mind, he looks like the rapist, um, whatever. And she's going to take this baby to Hull and say, look, Herbert's not gone. He's still here. And I just kept, I just keep thinking, you know, even as I'm rereading it, I'm thinking, what are you going to tell the parents about how the baby got there? Like, magic? Uh, reincarnation? Are you going to say, well, see, this is what happened. I was walking down this hallway in this upturned ship, and your son came along and threw me down to the ground and had sex with me against my will because he thought I was a stewardess, which... Apparently, it's it's fine to do that if you're a stewardess. But then he panicked because I was a, a, pa- a passenger, and he ran off into a plot hole and disappeared. Is that what you're going to say to the parents of this guy who raped you? It, it, it seems so so optimistic at the same time that it's completely fucking batshit. So anyway, that's the book. Um, the book has a lot of flaws, but it also has, um, in the translation to the movie, it also has a lot of um, pluses. You know, they do kind of seem to have gotten a screenwriter in who who knows what's going, you know, who read it and possibly had the same reaction that I did when I read it and said, okay, well, you know, this character needs to go, this character is useless, this character can be merged with this character, and also get rid of the fucking rape scene. So, um... The movie itself was um, commissioned for oh, for five million dollars. They they um, Irwin Allen came to the studio and said, "I want to make this movie," and they said, "Okay, here's five million dollars. This is all you're getting." Um, you know, it, it sounds like a little in today's dollars. You know, when you consider we're talking about a big budget disaster movie in you know in today's dollars, it's about thirty million dollars. So still not a lot of money. And Erwin Allen said, okay, I can do this with $5 million. I just have to be really, really precise. So he sits down, and he does um, a lot of figuring. He does a lot of, like, storyboards. He figures everything out. He's like, okay, well, we need this 
this actor, we need this actor. And the steward, the, the, the studio comes to him and says, well, while you're picking who's going to be on this, um, who's going to be in this cast, um, we got you a director. His name is Ronald Neem, and he's worked on these little, like, art house films in England up until now. And Irwin Allen presumably kind of made a face and said, okay. And, um, and Ronald Neem came on board. And Ronald Neem apparently is one of those directors who, who is very tough and puts his actors through, um, you know, kind of, I don't want to say hell, um, you know, because really whatever was going to happen, these actors were going to go through hell. But, you know, according to him uh, during the, the shoot, um, all of, uh, he said it was pretty good because each of the actors had a, a kind of a breakdown at him about once every 10 days. Unfortunately, there were more than 10 actors. So every day he was encountering somebody who was just pissed at him and yelling at him and said, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but anyway, um, uh, before we can even get to that, um, Irwin Allen, so Irwin Allen has his $5 million. Now he has this director, this director guy that he didn't ask for, but okay, whatever, he'll take him. And he's sitting around planning out what he's going to do with his $5 million to make this movie happen. And the studios, studio guy calls him in and the studio guy says, basically, um, well, we had this, we, I know we gave you $5 million, but the thing is we're kind of broke. Um, we, See, we, we made a lot of these, these musicals in the past few years when they were really popular, and they sucked, and they didn't bring in any money. So we're going to take that $5 million back from you, and, um, you know, you we're sorry. You know, no movie. You're just going to have to, you know, fire everybody and go home. And Irwin Allen is just thinking, fuck this. So he says, okay, look, let me make you a deal. You put forward $2.5 million. I'm going to go across the street. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to find the other $2.5 million. And the studio guy is like, well, okay, but I don't think you're going to be able to do it. So I really, Alan, he, he leaves the office, he goes across the street, and he finds these two, he, he sees these two guys um, that are over um, in a bar or something. I really don't know the exact details of the story on that count. But he goes over there, and there's a couple of guys there who are really rich. And he goes over, and he says, look, I want to make this movie you guys want to chip in with me and, 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 and front like $2.5 million into this movie so we can make it. And they said, yeah, sure. Just leave us alone. We want to finish our card game. So now he's got his 2.5 million. He's, um, and so 5 million starts the picture. Now with this cast, you have, um, you know, when you watch it today, a lot of the actors you don't really know. Like, you know Gene Hackman, of course. Gene Hackman is Gene Hackman. Um, Ernest Borgnine, you probably know. Um, Shelley Winters, maybe. And then you start going down this list of actors that you don't really know. You start getting the, like, Leslie Nielsen. And the reason, the only reason we know Leslie Nielsen now is because of the Naked Gun movies. So you're going further and further down the line until you get to, like, Carol Lindley. And even now you're like, who? Um, but... You know, there were all these actors that signed up to do this and to be um, sort of the the survivors of this this great shipwreck. And, and Shelley Winters' story is still my favorite because Shelley Winters said, um, you know, she was already somebody who was not exactly the skinny um, Hollywood ideal. Um, you know, she was kind of a little um, overweight anyway, and she was in her 50s. And then they said, well, um, Belle Rosen is the character that you're playing. She's, she's in the, in the book, she's very fat. 
um, you kind of need to be very fat for the for the movie. So she gained thirty pounds, which so this is nothing new in Hollywood where they make you where you go out and you gain weight to be in this movie. So she gains thirty pounds, and then they're like, okay, well, when it comes to the parts where you're gonna have to swim to rescue everybody, we can bring in somebody to do that for you. And she said, no, 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 no. I can do this. Johnny Weissmuller taught me how to swim way back in the day. This is the thing I love about old Hollywood because with old Hollywood, they all have these stories like, like, um, I learned how to swim from Johnny Weissmuller and I learned how to do this from like, I learned how to dance from Fred Astaire. He taught me a few tap moves and they all have these stories that are just like, you know, oh, oh, I, I know how to do this because, um, Catherine Hepburn taught me how to golf. It's like, it's the, these ridiculous stories. Like you learned how to do what from whom? But um, Shelley Winters said, yes, I'm going to do my own stunts. So she already knew how to swim. She gained 30 pounds, and then she went and she learned how to scuba dive and how to swim. And so when you see her swimming in the movie, that's her. That's not a stunt double. That's Shelley Winters in her 50s with 30 extra pounds that she never managed to lose, which made her really pissed off. So if anybody ever tells you, um, that, um, you know, that fat people can't be athletic, you know, and, and tries to be snide about it. Well, no, y you know what? Shelly Winters could kick your ass and underwater in that particular movie. Um, s there were, um, so anyway, they're making the movie and, and, uh, I mean, you can tell that it is a really difficult movie to make, you know, at the time I, you, you're looking at this from the point of view of these actors who have to go to work every day and be wet and dirty and grimy and wear the same outfit for the entire shoot. It cannot be fun. Um, another you know, one of my favorite stories from behind the scenes is, is um, you had uh, um, one of the, the um, uh, stunt guys. Um, it, well, he was a stunt guy, and he gets hired to do this role as the guy who, like, he flirts with Susan at the dance, um, at the New Year's Eve party. He kind of flirts with her and he's like, oh, Susan, would you like to go dance? And he's, and she's like, yeah, sure. Okay. I'd love to. And they go off and she does this little dorky dance and like, and at some point like turns away from him. Like, like I'd love to dance. I'm just going to ignore you now. But, um, apparently he used to be a stunt guy and all of a sudden now he's a, a, um, you know, paid actor. And at some point during filming, when they were doing this scene, um, the director comes up to him and goes, uh, yeah, you're going to have to do the stunt where you hang from the table up there and then drop into the, um, into the, the glass ceiling and, uh, the stained glass ceiling. And he's like, no, man, I'm, I'm an actor now. You get somebody to do it for you. Get another stunt guy. And they said, no, you're going to do it. So, um, he did it. Um, I didn't really know about that until I started looking stuff up about the movie just out of curiosity. But yeah, that that was the guy that she was dancing with um, earlier at the party. Um, but the thing the thing that gets me about the movie for so many, I mean, for something that was in the the early nineteen seventies, and and so many of these movies when you watch them. I mean, they're wearing, like, this awful fashions and these terrible hairdos. But in the movie, they actually kind of all look really nice. I wouldn't mind having having any of those those dresses that the, that the female characters are wearing. Um, you know, particularly Susan, who apparently, for some unknown reason, decided to go to a New Year's Eve party wearing not only a really nice dress, a really cute dress, actually, but also wearing hot pants underneath her skirt. And I just remember the first time I saw that movie when I was a kid, and 
I was a tomboy as a kid. And and here's this, this girl who's in this, you know, she's long, pretty hair and, and her nice white top and her pretty red dress. And, and, and you know, uh, Gene Hackman, super priest, uh, uh, turns around and looks at her and says, okay, well, Susan, you're up next, but you're going to have to take off that long gown. And, you, and you're thinking, you know, even as a kid, I'm thinking, is he asking her to get naked? Like, you know, what is he doing? Is he asking her to strip? What the heck? And he goes, and she goes, um, okay. And she just kind of nods, and then she she unbuttons her 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 skirt and takes it off, and she's wearing hot pants underneath. And as a kid, I'm watching that, thinking, what a genius! She wore shorts under a skirt so she could be prepared. I don't know if she was psychic or or she just wore hot pants because you know why wouldn't you? But she was wearing shorts under a skirt. That's genius. That's a level of intelligence that she doesn't show for the rest of the movie. But she goes and she, you know, she takes off her long skirt. She's still wearing her high-heeled uh, uh, sandals, so, you know, whatever. Apparently, from what I heard later on, um, uh, uh, Pamela Sue Martin stole her shoes from the set after the movie was over, which I don't blame her for one bit. They were really nice shoes. But I also kind of watch it with the same sort of mind as as a, the person who loves ro- watching Romancing the Stone. And I'm just kind of watching it thinking, what you need is a machete and Michael Douglas to fix that shoe problem. You know, and it's just, it, the, the movie itself, I mean, there's so many bits that are really, really interesting just in terms of, like, um, Gene Hackman. Like I said, super priest. I had a guy I knew in high school, I was talking to him about the Poseidon Adventure, and he called Gene Hackman super priest, and ever since then, that's all I can think. Because he just, not only is he sort of a superhero anyway, but he also seems to be, like, the kind of priest that I think would have kept me from becoming an atheist. He just is like, keep trying, you know, you know, if you're freezing in a, in a cold water flat and you're, and you, and you, you don't sit down, you know, you don't get on your knees and pray to God, you break apart the furniture and set it on fire. You know, it, it kind of, this is the kind of, of, of religion that I would respect, you know, getting up and saying, and I do respect religion. I'm not going to say that I don't, you know, but I, I, I just, I can't. I, this, I could follow this priest. I could not follow, you know, somebody who said, get on your knees and pray. But this guy, you know, you know, let's, let's get up off our asses and get the hell out of here. And that's the kind of priest I could follow. Now, in the book, he's a little more annoying. Um, and I say that with a certain amount of understatement. Um, the one thing that, that Gene Hackman does bring to it is, yeah, He's, he's a little bit, you know, kind of like, um, as, as the, the preacher, um, the other preacher in the movie says, you know, you kind of, you, you stand for the strong, you don't stand for the weak. Somebody has to be here for the people who can't get up and climb out of the ship, who don't have that fortitude mentally or, or, or emotionally or physically. Um, you know, you're, you know, fighting for people who, who can get up and who can, um, push themselves to that limit and, and you're not really gonna, you know somebody's got to be here to take care of the people who you're not going to be leading up the Christmas tree. Um, but you know, but in the book, he's kind of a little more smug and he used to be like a football player for Princeton and he climbs mountains and you kind of just read the book. Like why, you know, what is it with this character that just, 
you know, what what about him is supposed to be remotely like I mean, he's charming. You get that much. You get the understanding that, yeah, all these people would follow him because there is a certain amount of charm to him. That they, that he would be able to kind of get people to go, yes, let's climb up a metal Christmas tree and get to the bottom of the ship ourselves. We're, we can't just sit here and wait. But um, in the movie, it's a little better to understand because, you know, the Gene Hackman on the other screen, I mean, he's not physically attractive. I'm not, you know, nothing against Gene Hackman, but he's not, like, going to win any beauty contests now or then. And the guy that they talk about in the book sounds like a guy, like a like a bro, like a football bro. Um, you know, he's got a crew cut, and, and he's young, and he's he's still completely in shape, and, and um... He seems like a guy who has charm, but, you know, maybe part of that charm is also that he's very, that he's kind of physically attractive, and that draws people into him. Um, Gene Hackman's super priest is very persuasive. Uh, you know, he's, he's very much the kind of guy who can give you a pep talk and get you to do anything. Um, you know, and he's not a bad guy, but he's got flaws where he's, you know, very frustrated, you know, he can get frustrated, he can get angry, and he can, like, punch things, and, you know, he can get mad at God, you know, how many priests get mad at God without it being, like, a central, um, part of the narrative? In this case, it's not so much a central part of the narrative as kind of a side, side plot, um, you know, and, and sort of side-side plot, it's not really, a, um, the kind of thing that, um, uh, that the, the entire plot focuses on, but there is, there is sort of an annoying part to that too, because you have, um, um, him saying at the beginning of the movie to the other preacher, you know, um, the other reverend, um, oh, my bishop has blessed me. He sent me off to some country in the middle of, of Africa, um, you know, that I didn't even know the name of. I had to go find it on a map. And you, and, and I mean, I'm sure that sounds charming to some people, but all I could think was, this white guy is going to show up at this country in, in, in the middle of nowhere in Africa during a very war-term decade and start telling them all that they have to, um, you know, that God loves triers and God wants winners and you have to, you know, you have to fight for what you want and you can't just sit and pray. And he's probably going to get like a whole bunch of black people turning to him and going, yes, we know you can leave now. Like, you know, he's showing up to white splain God to them. And you just, you could just think, you know what, maybe, you, maybe you shouldn't survive this boat trip because the other option is you go to Africa and you become a dick even more so than you already are. But anyway, um, the, the movie itself, I mean, it's a lot of fun to watch just from the point of view of, um, uh, seeing the disaster movie genre kind of being born. You're seeing things like, um, you know, Belle Rosen, Shelley Winter's character, who's, who says at the beginning of the movie, oh, you know, we're not going to do any of those touristy things when we get to Israel. We're going to go see our grandson. He's two and we haven't even met him yet. And you're just sitting there thinking, oh my god, this is like in a, in a war movie when, when one of the guys brings out a picture of his girlfriend and says, this is Betty. We're getting married when, we go, when I get home. And you just think oh my god start the clock when is this guy gonna die that's the exact thing that you're getting out of bell rose and you're like oh god she she's gonna die oh how long is this gonna take oh god no you know and at some level you've already kind of you know fallen for her in a very grandma you know sort of way 
and um you know you just you don't want her to die she's just going to see her grandson but anyway um you know you have all these other characters you have um um you know james martin who's now kind of paired up with this um you know who's kind of gotten the role of nani's um weird crush Nani is a weird character anyway because she's somebody who already seems to have this weird crush on her own brother and then he dies and her weird crush transfers over to red buttons of all people and I will say that I have written for Yuletide red buttons well not red buttons James Martin excuse me James Martin and Nani Perry fanfic it was a nice sweet story where they got together after the movie but at the same time I did write it and I, I think the thing is that, like, even though she does have this weird crush on him, it is kind of cute, you know? And you do kind of think, oh, God, once they get back on land, you know, he's he's either going to marry her or adopt her. It's going to be one or the other. It's just really strange. And, and as for weird crushes, Susan Shelby, who the teenage girl is played by Pamela Sumarin, and who's wearing the hot pants, it, she has this really super weird crush on, on, um, on Reverend Scott, which is not so much weird because it's, you know, um, you know, young woman looking up to an older man and who seems so strong. And so, you know, so, you know, kind of like a, like a coach, you know, come on, let's go. We're going to, you know, we're going to go save ourselves. And she's kind of like, you know, wow. And I think part of it is this, this crush that she has on him where she doesn't want to you know she latches on to him because she really doesn't have you know a parent there to take care of her because of course they've written the parents out of the story and um that's the thing about the the the, the plot though uh you know you have um you know i said at the beginning of the, the episode uh you know one of the things that i was thinking about talking about um for for the movie break was um you know kind of gender equality in disaster movies of which there really isn't a lot of it's one of the, my pet peeves with the disaster genre um but you can kind of see it really clearly in the in in the Poseidon adventure you have four female characters who manage to survive this disaster you have or at least initially um you have uh Belle Rosen who is an older woman heavy set um, just wants to get to Israel to to see her grandson. Um, you know, she's she's kind of you know she doesn't really think she can do it, but but um, Reverend Scott talks her into you know getting up the Christmas tree, and getting to you know he keeps giving her pep talks. Come on, you can do this. And then at a certain point, she realizes, you know what? Yes, I, this this I can do. You know, and when she realizes that she can do the swimming thing, she's like, yes, this is something I can do. I will save you. I can do this. And she, you know, she goes and she plunges in full forward, and that's how she dies. Then you have a character like Linda Rogo. Linda Rogo is is this woman who used to be a a prostitute, but for you know, but married this cop, and now she, for some reason she's on a cruise wearing like like uh, ridiculously expensive dresses and and jewelry, and I I don't even know how either one of them afforded it, but she um she's loud she's brash she doesn't take shit she says what she's thinking she calls people stupid she calls bell rose and fat she does all these really like snotty offensive things she says horrible things to her husband and then she you know she's willing to push forward and, and do whatever she has to do to survive and she dies and then you have 
Susan Shelby, who basically does exactly what Super Priest tells her to do, um, gets really upset, always goes running to him crying, um, nearly throws herself into the fire when he dies, and um, basically um, shirks her duty as an older sister to take care of her younger brother. Um, and she survives. And then you have Nani Perry. Nani Perry, the singer who has the weird crush on her brother, um, you know, who which transfers over to uh, James Martin, Red Button's character, and then, um, you know, she kind of, he kind of, you know, she can't swim, she, she doesn't know if she can climb, you know, she's, she has a hard time climbing, she needs him to, to, to basically, like, push her up a ladder, like, she is the, she is the biggest anchor these people could have possibly taken on, and she still lives. So apparently, according to the rules of the Poseidon Adventure, if you have any sort of agency whatsoever as a woman, if you decide to take on you know, if you decide to go full forward, take care of yourself, get your, get your, um, try to help anybody else, get your ass through this disaster, you die. If you can't stop crying and running to a man, you live. And that's one of the more annoying things about the movie that I just, it grip, makes me grit my teeth every time I watch it. Another thing that makes me grit my teeth is that the mo the closest you come to a, um, the closest you come to kind of diversity, you know, diverse representation in this movie is is Ronnie McDowell having a Scottish accent. Um, there are like one or two people that you see who are um, not white people. Um, uh, there is, um, as far as I recall, you do see a woman in a sari, um, an Indian woman in a sari at, at one of the tables at the New Year's Eve party. But I mean, this is the kind of thing that you have. You have this like one person. And the annoying thing is that in the book, you have Kamal, who's Turkish and doesn't really speak English, who comes along and he actually survives. I mean, he's kind of a token, but it's kind of a step forward from what the movie does, which is really not put anybody forward to be sort of any sort of representation whatsoever. Now, I say that with the understanding that in Earthquake, you have Richard Roundtree, um, who's who's kind of doing heroic stuff. He's he's helping out, and then you have um, you know he's not the main character, but he is he is uh, one of the one of the um, heroes, um, if you want to call it that. And then you have in um, the Towering Inferno, O.J. Simpson, which I'm not even going to touch with a ten foot pole until we get to that movie, um, and. Um, so, so you know, in terms of representation, movie, these movies are, are kind of ridiculous. Um, when, you know, so that's the Poseidon Adventure. And then you see, um, you know, the $5 million that I mentioned that was the budget. Well, once they got to the end of filming, they kind of ran out of money. And they had this big plan for um, what they were going to do in terms of this upturned hall and... What ended up happening was um, they ended up having to put this upturned hull on, like, the roof of the studio and just film the um, helicopter flying off without seeing the ship itself upended. But wait! You get to see the ship upended in the sequel, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Now, I, I feel really, really bad about this, but I really didn't finish watching the, the Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. And the reason I really didn't finish watching Beyond the Poseidon Adventure is because it's terrible. Um, there's really nothing, um, interesting about it. Um, it's not really a lot of fun. Um, in terms of, of, of the cast, S Sally Field is in it. And Sally Field is in it when she's young and cute. When she's absolutely adorable. This tiny little, little, like, a hundred pounds, like, like, the short curly hair and the big smile and the, you know, the bouncy personality. And she's there. And you can't help but wonder, like, why? 
is it, it you know it was there blackmail involved um you know did she have to pay a mortgage why was she there and i mean part of it was probably oh this will be a really big movie because the first movie was really big well no no that's not what actually ended up happening um it really it really i mean it sunk like a rock at the box office and it sunk like a rock in terms of critic critical acclaim whereas at least with the Poseidon adventure i mean maybe you know the, whatever the critics said it did make a lot of money and it did win a couple of oscars so um you know it had that going for it including for the song the morning after which um is one of those songs where you know you don't really want to like it but you kind of have to um and, you, and, it, and it kind of helps to 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 learn to like it um you kind of learn to like it after you watch the towering inferno because the towering inferno um they 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 try to do the same thing that they did with the poseidon adventure which is write sort of a theme song that the singer at the at the party sings and it's terrible um it's about like you know oh uh the flame in the dark and blah 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 and it ends up sounding a lot like macarthur park for some reason and it's just it's just you know, what you really don't want to hear in a movie about a, 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 an enormous building on fire is a song about a flame that will never die out. And it's just like, who wrote this and how much did they drink while they were doing it? So, mm, excuse me. Um, I'm just going to um, skip the Beyond the Poseidon Adventure because it's really one of those disaster movies where you really don't want to watch it. It's absolutely terrible. It feels a lot like... Um, like, um, what would happen if, um, you lucked into, like, $5,000 and you decided to make a National Treasure sequel in your old high school? Um, and your dad knew Tally Savalas from, from, like, a bar game or something like that and decided to, um, you know, kind of place a bet against him to see if he could get him in his movie, in this movie, and... Um, Tali Savalas lost, so now he has to be the bad guy in the movie. Um, that's what it feels like. That, I mean, the, the movie feels like, like, like a lost bet. Like, everybody involved lost a bet. And so now they have to be in this sequel to Poseidon Adventure that nobody wants to watch, including me, and I love bad disaster movies, so that's pretty sad. Um, the Poseidon Adventure, um, actually got remade a few years ago. I believe it was 2005. It was actually, it was just a really, really bad, bad movie. Um, it, I mean, it's, special effects wise was actually, um, pretty good. Um, they really put money into it, um, making the, um, uh, the wave look really good, which is basically like, in terms of, um, special effects, that's the disaster, just the, the part of the special effects that you want to get right is that disaster, is that giant wave coming at you and flipping it over. But at the same time, it's just, I mean, it's just so ridiculous because, for example, um, when the wave is coming at the ship, and it's huge, Richard Dreyfus, again, no idea why he's in this movie, another lost bet, maybe, um, he's, 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 um, outside and he's planning to kill himself because his boyfriend, um, broke up with him, um, husband maybe, I'm not exactly sure, either way, they managed to stick a gay character in there, which was actually really nice in terms of representation, but then he's, um, going to go kill himself by jumping off the, the side of the ship, um, because he hasn't gotten a call, um, 
from this guy um, before midnight. So he goes to jump off the ship and he sees this this um, big wave coming and he freaks out and he goes to run back into the ship. Well, he runs back in and it's like these double doors and, you know, kind of like, um, I don't know if they're magnetic or what, but I, I mean, you watch him run in and you think when that wave hits those doors, all the water is going to come in. And that's sort of the kind of thing that, like, throws you out of this movie. It's just little things like that. There's a certain point where there's a giant atrium where before the um, lobby sort of atrium, it goes up, like, like five or six floors or however many, and it's like a big hotel, and, and um, you know, you have the elevator and everything going up, and it's just basically a big hollow space. So when this the ship flows, flips over, it's filled with water at the bottom, and... and um, and then all of a sudden it's filled with gas or oil. I don't know what it is, but it's it, it catches on fire and, and, and shoots up this giant um, column of fire. And it, it, oh God, I could not look more fake. It, I, I, it looks like something I made in paint. That's how bad it is. But, in the, in the, I mean, in this movie, they kind of bring out, like, like, the stars you might know. And, like, the people that you might know are Fergie. Um, I know Fergie was the, the, the singer that they managed to get to play the singer on the ship, which if they were trying to make it look like she's, she's doing terribly at her, at her job that so badly that she has to work on a cruise line. I mean, that was what it came to. Um, they said some other name for her character, but let's face it. It's really Fergie. We know it's Fergie. Why even try to hide it? Um, Andre Brower plays the captain, and, I mean, you know, he's a recognizable face. I mean, now he's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he's probably the funniest part of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, but, I mean, you know, he's he's Andre Brower. He's not, like, I don't know what he was doing on here. I mean, if it was another disaster movie, this might make a lot of more sense, but why is Andre Brower's a better actor than this? Why can't he go home? Um... <laughs> Uh, Kurt Russell is basically the big name actor that they have in here. Um, he's playing the former mayor of New York. He used to be a fireman, and now he's, um, disgraced, I guess. I don't exactly know what it is, but he's, um, he didn't have, he, he's, he's on this ship with his daughter, who's played by Emmy Rossum. Emmy Rossum was in, um, Phantom of the Opera, and now she's on Shameless. And she's a really good actress, but at the same time, like, she looks nothing like Kurt Russell, I feel like that should be something that you that you try for with an actor. I just, I mean, even if they, you can do it. You can find an actress who looks like, you know, the mother of another actress. You can find an actor who looks like the father of another actor. It's not that difficult. That's what casting agents are supposed to do. Um, but she's on there, and she's brought her kind of her dopey um, boyfriend, and it turns out her fiance and. Um, she hasn't told her father, which, I mean, she has a ring. Doesn't she go out in public wearing this ring when he's not around, um, and get a tan? Uh, you know, isn't there a tan line? You know, like, what, how does he not know that he, that this, that this dopey guy has proposed to her and they're keeping it secret? Like, just, just, I, I don't know. The, the whole plot line is a little bit ridiculous. Then, of course, he dies at the end so that she can live, which, uh... I, I'm I'm never a, a big fan of, of those um, kind of plot lines in, in disaster movies where it's just like, um, you know, some guy 
and it's ha- and it happens in Armageddon too, where some guy, um, you, you know, lead guy, the big name star in the movie, um, decides to um, uh, die so that he can save everybody else, but specifically his daughter, who's engaged to this guy he doesn't like, and oh, well, you know, take care of my daughter, and then he dies, and it's like. She can take care of herself. Everything you've shown me shows me that she can take care of herself. She's a ballsy little girl. Like, I mean, she's a ballsy young woman. I say little girl, but I mean, that's why he treats her. And, and you know, she she can take care of herself just fine. But, um, you know, which is completely different from um, uh, Armageddon, where I'm, I'm pretty sure if... if um, if if Liv Tyler were left alone, uh, Liv Tyler's character were, were left alone for, for more than five minutes in that movie, she would have fallen off an oil rig. But then, of course, you have Dylan something or other. I can't remember his name. He's, 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 he was in Sweet Home Alabama. Um, I'll look it up later, and I'll feel really bad that I don't remember it, because I actually do kind of like him and stuff, and he's kind of... Uh, just um sort of like the um other superhero guy in this movie where he um he's the one who's running around the decks at the beginning of the movie and instead of being like um red buttons who in the original is is kind of a big dork um in this he is um a lot more you know he's 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 a hot guy he's running around the deck you know he's he's a lot more heroic um, which is kind of annoying, uh, just in retrospect. Like, I want to see a dorky guy be a hero. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see, hero, you know, a guy who looks like that be a hero, and another guy who looks like that be a hero, and another guy who looks like that be a hero. Um, I want to see, like, average, everyday people being, like, doing what they can to be heroic. And, like, that's the thing about this, the, the 1972 version of Poseidon Adventure, is that in that movie, they at least got, like, normal-looking people. I mean, for the most part, in terms of the actors and actresses. But, um, anyway, in the remake, you know, you have you have these guys, and then you have, um, you know, you have, like, Jacinda Barrett and, um, uh, who else? Uh, Kevin Dillon. And just, just these actors that, like, you care nothing about, so you're perfectly fine with them falling into, like, a vat of boiling hot water that's on fire. Um, uh, you know, Kevin Dillon gets to be a dick for the movie, so, you know, of course, you, you have a, a lot of fun watching him die. Um, and that, you know, spoilers, but you do, you, you have a lot of fun watching him die. Um, but, you know, Jacinda Bear's character has a son, so, of course, we don't want her to die, we don't want him to die. Um, you know, because disaster movies, we don't want kids to die. Except in the original um, Poseidon Adventure, where that was literally the one plot point I wanted them to keep from the book. Um, Eric Shea in the original plays possibly the most annoying child character known to man, um, running around spouting off uh, facts about the Poseidon like he's signing up to be the next captain. Um... So you kind of wish that he had kind of wandered off and fallen into a plot hole and died, but he didn't, unfortunately. Um, at least in Poseidon, you kind of want that kid to live. Um, in the remake, you you know, he's not quite as um, uh, precocious. And there's nothing wrong with being precocious, but Eric Shea was, was, was kind of the cheese grater of precocious. Like, 
he, he, it was like he walked right up to you and just kind of shoved your face into this, this scratchy surface and just kind of, do you want to hear about the propeller blades? No, get the fuck away from me. Anyway, um, the one thing I will give credit to the Poseidon remake, um, for is that it does manage to kind of cram in a little more representation. Of course, I said you have Andre Brower. Um, you have two uh, Latino characters um, who unfortunately both die. Um, you also have uh, Richard Dreyfuss's character who is gay who also dies. I think it's another thing that, that, that it has a problem with though. You know, we bring on these characters and and, and um, we, we keep all the white ones. And, um, you know, but I mean the movie itself is, is just kind of cheesy and stupid. But I like cheesy and stupid disaster movies, so that's why I watched it. Um, a little lesser known, but no less ridiculous, is um, the Poseidon Adventure miniseries from a few years back. Um, I mean, as if the, the, the plot line itself isn't enough to sustain, sustain an entire movie. Which it clearly is. They managed to do it in 1972. Um... They managed to turn the sinking of the Poseidon into a terrorist plot. And because it's a terrorist plot, they, you have like 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning of the movie where, you know, it's all about foiling this terrorist plot and trying to find out, you know, well, they stole paperwork from this this um, terrorist um, office or warehouse or whatever, and they don't know what they're going to go after. And, and the hilarious part is when... These um, FBI and CIA agents like storm this terrorist um, cell um, warehouse, and they go in, and all these plans are up on this like board, and they have land and sea and air, and and land and air are all there. Everything is there, so you know everything about whatever's supposed to happen on land, which is probably some explosion on like a like a in like a building or something something um, something realistic for terrorist something that a terrorist does and then they have like the plane the air okay well yeah terrorists blow up planes all the time and then they have sea and it's gone and they're going to go off and they're going to do the sea one and nobody knows what's going to happen and nobody knows you know what the terrorists are doing blah 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 well you know this is where i kind of lose it because i was like why would you want to do land sea and air are you are you you know what's the point of sea Really, what is the point of C? Why would you want to go after a cruise ship? You know, it's not like people are traveling on them for, you know, for travel like now, you know, like like in, you know, decades past. It's really more to, for fun, and a lot of people can't afford that kind of thing. And, you know, so you're really just bombing a bunch of risk people. Like, do, do you really, and, and not even a bunch of rich people that anybody cares about. Because people who are rich enough to go off on a boat and and to be cared about by the public, who are who are famous enough to be cared about by the public, are not going on a cruise ship. They're going on their own yacht. Anyway, so you have this 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 ship, and everybody's getting on it. And of course, you have Belle Rosen, the old lady character, and now she's played by an old lady who who will clearly not be doing her own swimming um uh, swimming uh special uh, stunt work. And you also have. Um, and, and of course her husband is dead. So you get a lot of, re you know, references to, oh, Manny would have wanted me to do this and blah, blah, blah. It's just tiresome. And, and I, you kind of miss the grandson in Israel that nobody's going to see. 
But um, along with that, you also get um, the Reverend, who is played by Rutger Hauer, looking vaguely, unfortunately, like my Aunt Phyllis. Um, and uh, he's, um, he's on this trip to travel to um, somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where, but he's just kind of... Um, I can't even remember, but I just remember that it, it's kind of... Um, He's his first trip or whatever, and, and Mrs. Rosen is showing him around. And then you have the Shelbys. Now the parents are on the trip, and of course, they're get, they're thinking about getting a divorce. So they've decided to bring their kids on this bonding trip, which is a really great idea, because now they have this older daughter who's in college to be a nurse, and she, of course, can figure out exactly what the hell they're doing. I don't know why she said she was going to go with them. She's in college. She can say, say she wants to stay home. And then you have the son, who tries his damnedest to be even more annoying than the character in the original movie. He tries, man. He He's just, I mean, as annoying as Eric Shea is in, a, in the original movie as, an, as, as, a, as a character. And he's not a bad actor. That kid was never a bad actor. He was in some movies, he was in other movies, and I've seen him in other movies, some, you know, some Disney-related things, and he's actually a pretty good actor. But, this kid was not. And, and he's, you know, you have a bad actor playing a bad character. It's not fun to watch. It's, he's running around with a video camera, which, okay, he's, he, you can clearly tell this is before cell phones because he would have had a cell phone. Um, probably would have had his iPhone with the entire rig of the, the kind of the extendable lens and all that. And he would have been filming his movie and he would have been making it and, in Movie Maker and blah blah blah, and posting it on YouTube. But of course, it, this is before that, so we're not going to do that. Um, but he's wandering around with his his little handheld camera, like making a movie, quote unquote. And he's making this vampire movie, and this um, he wanders into the kitchens, and the steward um, Acres um, not only decides to write him like a permission slip, like it fucking means anything in any part of, of the ship for him to just go, I have a permission slip from Stuart Akers. Like, who gives a shit? But he wonders, um, you know, but Akers decides, you know, oh, well, I was an actor in college. Except he says thespian probably to make it sound kind of weird when he tells a little boy that. And um, the next thing you see is him pretending to be um, a, a vampire for this this movie. And it's just, like, you have a job. Go do your job. There's got to be a job that you can do that doesn't require you throwing on a dishcloth or tablecloth, excuse me, and wearing fake vampire teeth wherever the hell you got them and pretending to eat a chef who also probably has a job that she has to be going and doing. Like, I, the whole thing is, is kind of patently ridiculous until you find out later that, of course, um, his mother is rich, so, you know, it's probably a matter of do what the wealthy woman says. Uh, wealthy woman's son says. Uh, but that's the thing. That's another thing, too. Because the parents in this movie are played by some actress that I vaguely recognize from something but can't really name off the top of my head, and Steve Gutenberg. The thing about Steve Gutenberg is he's either really sympathetic or kind of a dick. And that's with all of his roles. Sympathetic or kind of a dick. It's There's no in-between. He's one or the other. And in this movie, he definitely kind of, in the miniseries, he definitely kind of leans towards kind of a dick. Um, and not just kind of a dick, but a little bit more of kind of a dick than usual. Um, you know, there's certain points where he decides he's going to blame his wife for everything, even when he does something, like, just completely shitty. Um, 
you know, I think one of the one of my favorite parts is him and his wife have this big blow up, and and she finds out that he's sleeping with a masseuse on board. You know, they've been sneaking off to go see her, and they're fighting in their apart in, in their rooms. And at one point, he gets mad. You know, he's ready to go and and go hide out with his masseuse, and he opens the door, and the kid is standing there, and he's and and tears are rolling down his little boy face, and he goes running off, and and Steve Gutenberg turns around and he gives his wife this look. And I swear to God, the look that he gives his wife is, look what you did. Like, she was the only one having this conversation. Like, she was talking to herself. And you just kind of, like, and, and then after that, he gives her that look. And what happens after that? She goes looking for the son. He goes off to the masseuse. Not not the kid, obviously. Steve Gutenberg goes off to his masseuse. And you kind of think, where do you have the right to give her that dirty look? when you were going off to the masseuse rather than looking for the sun. Like, it should have been, you should have been going off after the sun and leaving the wife there. Like, that, you know, if if you had any sort of stones, that's what you would have done. But no, you were full of crap. You went to the masseuse. And then, of course, of course, the, the ship flips over um, later on, and, and, and he's left with this... Um, uh, you know, he's left with with this masseuse, and the masseuse is actually kind of street smart. She kind of is, like, sensible and saying, okay, well, I live on this ship. I know it really well, and we have to go here, and we have to go there. And, and um, you know, and, of course, he's whiny, and, he didn't put, and they were sleeping together because they were naked in bed and when the ship flipped over, and now he couldn't find his shoes, so he's walking around on glass. He's basically, like, an anchor around her neck. He really just kind of wanted her to throw him away and wander off, like, you know. <laughs> Why did I, you know, you want her to go, why did I have sex with Steve Gutenberg? And then just go. Um, but I, one of the more annoying things about the movie is that um, kind of the main character, um, at least for the audience, is is um, Mike Rogo, who in this case is not, um, is not, you know, a New York City detective, but he's a Homeland Security um, officer who is on board to look for um, these terrorists. Now, that would be one thing. I could kind of get the update on that, and it makes a lot of sense, but he's played by Adam Baldwin, and Adam Baldwin is somebody who, um, he played, he played Jane uh, on Firefly, and that was probably the only, um, time that he's ever played a role that didn't involve him either being typecast as somebody in the military or a cop or, um, well, no, in My Bodyguard, he was, he, I, I don't know, I, I kind of think that My Bodyguard, he, he would have gone off and been in the military, too, but he seems, a lot of his, either, either he's being typecast as somebody in the military, or he really, really wants to be in the military, and he can't get in there, so he's just going to keep taking these roles where he's, where he's in the military, and he's wandering around this ship, like, as a, as a Homeland Security guy, but kind of acting like Jane from Firefly a little bit, which I don't think is, is all that smart or realistic or legal. Um, even in the midst of disaster, he's, 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 um, you know, once this, um, big, you know, um, ballroom flips over and everybody's, um, kind of, uh, trapped and and um you know they're thinking about getting out he's got this terrorist guy who was one of the guys who blew up this bomb on the one side of the building that uh, the one side of the ship that flooded water in and now he's going to take over the ship he shot the the um uh he shot the the, the captain who was played by peter weller so of course you're you know you're at this point you're making uh robocop jokes 
And um, it does feel a little bit better because the captain in the movie, in the miniseries, is named Paul Gallico, which is the name of the author of the original book. And you kind of feel better because, uh, you know, you kind of think of certain plot lines in the original book and you think, yeah, he asked for that. Um, but, uh, in the movie, um, um, uh, Mike Rogo kind of, kind of, um, turns into this sort of cliche of a, of, um, a Homeland Security slash military guy and just kind of is like, um, you know, we need to bring him with us. He may know more and, you know, I have this gun and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's so tiresome. Doesn't Adam Baldwin ever get tired of playing these characters? Doesn't he ever want to play like an ice cream man or a juggler, or a comedian, or something. Doesn't he ever want to play something that isn't, like, a guy in a uniform with a gun being a tough ass? Like, I don't even understand it, but he plays it again in this in this miniseries, and he's kind of, kind of annoying. Um, I actually paid for the miniseries on Amazon, so now I have it in my Amazon um, file forever and ever, my Amazon library forever and ever. God forbid I have this movie. Um, and it's sort of, um, it's sort of, um, ridiculous, you know, this miniseries in terms of things like, um, like, uh, I I think one of my favorite parts of the movie, just in terms of technology, because I always love how disaster movies deal with technology. There's so many movies where, um, you know, um, the use of technology is very dated, and so, you know, there are certain movies where you watch it and you think if they had a cell phone at this particular time, they would have been able to do this. Or, um, for example, um, uh, uh, San Andreas, that came out last year, um, there's a certain point where three of the characters um, break into, like, this radio shack and they discover that um, the landline still works, so they try to call um, um, the one girl's dad, who's The Rock, um, and the thing is that, like, you know, if cell phone towers aren't working because they've had this horrible disaster, why the fuck do landlines work? You know, that kind of thing. But, the, you know, this is the thing with technology in these movies is that sometimes, you know, what they do makes perfect sense. And sometimes you think, you know, well, if it was made now, you know, a lot of this would um, not be the same because of things like cell phones and the Internet and that kind of thing. Um but in this um, Poseidon Adventure miniseries, uh, at one point, um, the one character, the, the mom, um, decides that she's going to, um, probably the best way to get in touch with the outside world is to send out a message to um, uh, her, Christmas e- her Christmas mailing list. And it's just like, there's no other better way to get, you know, you have internet access and you're just sending out this message to your, okay, okay. All right, you know, there's got to be a better way to do it now. And you kind of, and then once you think that, you kind of think, what would happen if the Poseidon Adventure happened now? Um, if something happened to a ship now? I mean, you think of like you think of like the Costa Concordia, where um, there are so many like videos and and clips and all of these things that got posted to um, to YouTube of the ship tipping over. And and I mean, if it happened now, I mean, it would be on the internet in a heartbeat. It, uh, if they could um, um, get in touch with, you know, if they could, uh, you know, get in touch with, say, Twitter, there would be, you know, there would be people on there going, oh, my, oh, you know, OMG, the ship is flipping over, lol, you know, I'm, which, please, please don't critique my next speak. I'm halfway, I'm a little bit buzzed right now, so, um, 
it's just kind of made up off the spot. But that is kind of the thing that you're looking at, is you would have these constant updates. You would know exactly what was going on. And, um, you know, with a ship sinking, that's one thing. Um, with planes, it's a little different. So, um, you know, it's a little, you, sometimes you, you may have things where people cannot actually message um, um, people because something happened so fast. But with shipwrecks... It's really not something that um, um, goes so quickly that you can't really do anything about it unless the entire ship blows up. I mean, if it were to happen now, you would get a lot more people who would have the time to um, get on the phone and get on the internet um, and contact people. And I think that's probably, you know, one of the interesting things now is watching the updates that you get to the Poseidon Adventure story from from movie to to miniseries to other movie and and seeing you know okay well um you know well you know if he can if he can if he can get on 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 the um cell phone and he can talk to people now well what you know and that was ten years ago what happens now you know if they remake the the Poseidon Adventure tomorrow what ha you know you and you end up with people trying to frantically trying to keep their iPhones from getting wet so they can get on like like Facebook Messenger and go guys somebody get the coast guard to my fucking ship um it's upside down la 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 um but you know with all of that in mind um the, the original Poseidon adventure the original flavor of Poseidon adventure I mean I would recognize rec recommend that to anyone um like I said it's problematic I'm not going to say it's not but it's kind of where you see disaster movies coming to the forefront. And Irwin Allen, who produced it, you know, he goes on to produce things like, like Earthquake and like this, um, the uh, Towering Inferno. And he really kind of um, took the 70s by the hand and dragged them through fire and through earthquakes and through all kinds of different things. And he ended up um, doing something that a lot of, um, uh, people were doing at the time where a lot of people were, you know, trying to get Oscars for, um, you know, for acting and all those kind of things. And these movies did get nominations for, for, um, acting Oscars. Shelley Winters got a, a, a nomination for, um, acting as Belle Rose in The Poseidon Adventure, which is really great. Um, you had, um, you, you know, in, uh, I believe in Towering Inferno, um, it was Fred Astaire who got nominated for being in that movie, which seems kind of strange now. I mean, he's, he's very good in it. I'm not going to lie, but, um, just out of all the movies that he's done, he, he gets an acting uh, nomination for the Oscars for the, for the towering Inferno. But, um, but in terms of, 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 of the disaster movie genre, the Poseidon adventure is key. You have to watch that. So, um, if you haven't already seen it, which I see, it seems pretty weird, you know, like you would listen to this entire podcast, 118 minutes, no, not 118 minutes, an hour and 18 minutes, I'm fine, I'm buzzed, but I'm fine, um, you would listen to this whole thing and you hadn't actually seen the movie, any of the movies, miniseries, book, anything, um, but yeah, I'd go watch it again if you've seen it, it's, it's a lot of fun, um, get drunk, I'm drunk and I'm fine, um, <laughs> Okay, so um, next time around, um, next real episode um, of, of the podcast will be about the Uruguayan rugby team, which crashed in the mountains on flights 
571 with the Uruguayan Air Force and had to survive for 70 days. <clears throat> 71 days? 72 days? It was, it was in the 70s. Um, I know that much. Again, I'm drunk, so. Um, but they had to survive in the mountains of the Andes um, and uh, resorted to some very tragic measures. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Alive, uh, that would be the story I am talking about, of course. Um, the movie's okay. I would like to see a remake. Um, they did get consultants from the survivors, but there are certain things that I would like to see um, done, and I, I will probably talk about those, those during the episode, but until next time, stay safe. Thank you.